This is The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation on Monocle 24, the programme that puts the future of working life firmly in the spotlight. This week, as lockdown measures start to ease around the globe and people assess the damage and start thinking about life in the post-pandemic world, we'll explore the economic impact on individuals and small businesses. We'll uncover stories of success, community values and reflect on some of the strains placed on workers and workplaces alike. We'll look across sectors and territories from delivery drivers in Brazil to footballers in the UK and ask how, in a precarious time, we can develop and nurture career resilience. And as we reach what must surely be recognised only as the end of the beginning of the crisis, we'll ask what steps we should be taking to secure our working lives, workforces and communities in the future. That's all ahead on this week's edition of The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. The coronavirus pandemic has touched every corner of our lives. The terrible human cost has been matched perhaps only by the economic fallout. For those whose jobs have remained safe throughout the pandemic, COVID-19 has precipitated a major shift in where they work. The closure of workplaces around the world has seen a surge in the numbers of people working from home. But for many millions more, this development, long heralded as a key stage in the evolution of work life, doesn't apply. Who can and cannot work from home has become yet another yardstick for inequality. From those working in fields to ensure vital food supply chains aren't interrupted, to medical support workers, cleaners, porters and paramedics working on the front lines to keep people safe, many lower paid yet indispensable workers aren't afforded the luxury of shifting the workplace to a domestic setting. Later, we'll hear from one of these figures, a delivery driver for whom a surge in demand has seen business boom, even as employers have taken a more laissez-faire attitude towards his welfare. We'll also catch up with small business owners, find out how manufacturers stay in business when workers are confined to their houses, and hear what co-working spaces can do when offices are closed. Ahead of that, let's get a sense of some of the major changes that COVID-19 has served to accelerate – Linda Gratton is a professor of management practice at London Business School. Her new book, The New Long Life, co-authored with Andrew Scott, looks to the future to ask how longer lifespans and developments in technology stand to extend and reshape our working lives. So what are the key changes that Linda sees the coronavirus pandemic as having precipitated? I think that the pandemic has, without a doubt, accelerated the shifts that were in play already. In terms of life expectancy, it's made us really realise how important healthy living is, healthy ageing is. And also in terms of technology, it's accelerated the whole path of automation. There's no question that these are accelerating times, but at the same time, it's also brought to the fore some important questions about how do we want to live? You know, what do we value? And what are the sort of ways that we want to learn as we go forward? How can we best respond to the challenges that we face? We'll get back to those questions in a moment. But for the millions of people cast unexpectedly into situations of the utmost precariousness, how do we reevaluate our roles in the workplace, in the economy, and build resilience to ensure that we can withstand this sort of turbulence? I absolutely agree that this is a moment where many of us feel precarious. You know, even those of us in jobs that we thought were absolutely stable have had to take a pay cut. 
many people are, are furloughed. Some people aren't going to come back. And when we thought that middle class, middle income jobs were stable, we're now learning that they're not. In this moment of feeling precarious, I think we have to ask ourselves about our own self-resilience, but also about our family and our community. You know, it's interesting talking to people in terms of how they've responded. Very often, it's the family that's helped them to respond. While unexpected precarity has become the new normal, perhaps, for millions, millions more are already used to it, members of lower-paid, often zero-hours economies have found themselves performing a crucial function in society, even as their situations remain unstable. Has the pandemic played a part in highlighting the necessary public and private sector changes in how these individuals are valued? One of the things that this pandemic has uncovered is the deep inequalities that are part of our society. What it has done, which I think may well help with with regard to inequalities, is to help us to realise how connected we are all to each other. We're embarrassed about the fact that the people who are supporting us right now are very, very low paid. And so I would be very surprised if these don't impact the sort of values and choices that we make both individually and collectively going forward. So what are these choices and these shifting values? If we take this crisis as a learning opportunity, what are those key lessons that individuals should be taking away from it? We, during this pandemic, as a society, have made some very important decisions. One of the decisions we've made is we will put the health and well-being of our citizens beyond our GDP. And that was a profound choice that we made, that we continue to make. And I think that we will be very disappointed if when we come out of this, we just revert to how we were before. That would be a very disappointing outcome. I'm saying this is an opportunity for us to think again of what sort of society we want to have, to think about how we operate as communities and neighbourhoods and as families, which is really at the heart of the, our new book, The New Long Life. You know, what, what is it that we want families to do? What do we want communities to do? And I think that the voices of communities, the voices of families, the voices of neighbourhoods, the voices of cities have to be the dominant voice. We need to have a societal voice, which is just as strong as the political voice or the voice of economists or of health experts. We have to say what sort of world we want to live in. Linda Gratton there. We'll be picking up on some of these themes of the resilience to be found by the individual in a community and shifting value systems away from the GDP and towards individual welfare later in the programme. You're listening to The Way to Work. Stay tuned. This is The Way to Work. A moment ago, we heard from Linda Gratton, Professor of Management Practice at London Business School. She unpacked some of the rapid changes COVID-19 has made to the workplace and reflected on some of the shifts in values it's also precipitated. Amongst the positives of the situation, she says, societies will emerge from the pandemic with a renewed appreciation for indispensable but often low-paid workers on whom they've come to rely. Let's hear the personal story of one of these individuals now. Brazil has been hit harder by COVID-19 than anywhere else in Latin America. It's indeed among the most badly impacted countries globally. As states there went into lockdown, delivery drivers found themselves in high demand. 
Wesley Maximo do Jesus is 27. He lives in the municipality of Sao Paulo in Brazil and has worked as a delivery driver for almost three years. As the pandemic spread to the country, what was it like for him and his colleagues? With the arrival of COVID-19 here in Brazil, many apps had a high level of demand at the start of quarantine, mid-March, and they weren't worried about informing the drivers, collaborators, or dishing out kits and protective gears like masks. With the massive economic damage caused by COVID-19, was Wesley more concerned about his financial security or his health? My biggest worry today is to be infected by those who are not respecting quarantine and are not following health guidelines. In future, I would like to see that companies, specifically Happy, which is the app that has the highest demand here in Sao Paulo and covers multiple services, that they show more concern for the delivery driver, their health, that they put in place a strong app that works and doesn't make mistakes when you're out and about, and that they stick to their terms and conditions and stop changing them. During this time, lots of things have changed, and we end up earning less or feeling worse off. Wesley Maximo de Jesus there. Wesley paints a stark picture of the reality of life on the front line in lower-paid sectors for millions around the world. Let's turn to another one of those. Now, the sporting world was rocked when, early in lockdown, it was announced that the Summer Olympic Games, set to take place in Tokyo, of course, was being delayed. The Olympic Games, though, are just one of a huge number of sporting fixtures to be suspended, delayed or cancelled outright. While the disappointment may be felt personally by sports people, it's also professional. The disruption caused to training schedules and the impossibilities of training for team sports under lockdown highlight athletes as another group of the workforce for whom working from home is difficult, if not impossible. Anita Asante is a professional footballer. She's played for teams around the world and represented the UK as part of the national squad at the Olympics. She now plays for Chelsea Football Club. So what was it like for her and the team when the crisis first broke? When the pandemic hit, we were still in the midst of our season. So, you know, typically I would arrive at the training ground normal routine, breakfast with the team in the mornings, train in the afternoons on the pitch. And obviously sometimes we have gym sessions as well late in the afternoon. I think in the early stage of the pandemic, we had already resorted to kind of small group training for those that were around because we were they weren't really sure how it would develop and what protocols would come in place. So that only lasted over, I think, two days, and it was like during a weekend. And then they realised that, okay, things at the club, our coaches and the staff realised that things were developing quite quickly and it would affect our training quite significantly. So they started to try to prepare us for training away from the club and away from the team. At the beginning, it wasn't too impactful, I guess, because I guess we were all, including myself, quite optimistic that, you know, we'd potentially return. But I think as the weeks went on, we started to realise that that wasn't likely. And a lot of the responsibility was going to fall on my shoulders in terms of my own personal training and how I disciplined myself to do that. And I think that's a challenge, obviously, like you say, when you're used to being in a team environment where we sort of push each other as well. And we help each other because 
training is is part of like our development process and you're not always you have good days you have bad days you have things you got to work on and you need that support sometimes on and off the pitch so I think getting to terms with that was quite quite hard and a bit of an emotional you kind of go through I think emotional ups and downs. Did Anita's extensive experience as an athlete prepare her in any way for the shock of the pandemic? No one expected to be in the kind of situation we're in now with the pandemic and I think for myself it's been a chance to really stop and be reflective as well about things that I've experienced and done within my own playing career and how that resilience has developed and that has been from transitioning from clubs to clubs as well as from different countries to adapting and learning different languages and experiencing some major long-term injuries so I've had to sort of overcome those kinds of obstacles that have put me out from the thing that I love to do the most I definitely think that now has been a time that I can look back and go you know what I've had challenges it's not always been easy like most people but at the end of the day I'm fearless about what's ahead even if I'm afraid if that makes sense Even if I'm afraid to step into a new career or try something that I think myself I don't have great experience in, I'm a lot less afraid to say, yes, I'm going to try that and figure it out along the way. Because that is what really for me life is anyway. And at least my sporting experiences have taught me that. So has the pandemic caused Anita to look ahead to life after football? Resilience and adaptability come hand in hand and COVID-19 has made considerable demands on both of those. How has Anita started to view her inevitable career transition? In one sense, it's made me think about all the other things I might want to do. I mean, I've always felt like I would want to give back to my sport in some way, whether that be in coaching or in management, development, and or otherwise. It's something I still want to do. So actually, it's not deterred me from that either. At the same time, it's also allowed me to develop other skills in terms of speaking engagements, my writing skills, and exploring other areas that really technology and sort of creative innovation is, is coming through tech. I'm thinking ahead to how that will impact my sport in sport in general, because football is also going to have to find a way to maybe utilise the benefits of what the tech industry keeps doing and growing in terms of creation and innovation in situations like this, where you can't have fans at games, where you still need to develop and grow a sport in terms of interest. So how do we understand the objectives of brands and sponsors and getting them involved and getting them to support the women's game. And it's also impacting me in terms of how I feel I want to help the game in terms of how I'm working right now with FIFA Pro, the Global Player Council, and understanding what the challenges are globally for women in football and what areas need to be improved basically. And and I feel like it's allowing me to develop my areas of socio-political activism, you know, and how I can impact that that way potentially as a future pathway. 
This socially minded approach echoes some of the ideas we heard earlier, that resilient careers must be grounded in a foundation of strong community ties. And even that an industry's resilience depends on the engagement and support of its workforce. Does Anita see the pandemic as driving a shift in that value system, a renewed appreciation perhaps for the value of community? I just think ultimately it's allowed for sort of greater collectivism, a lot more conversations taking place, a lot more people wanting action and and real change. And not just for the short term, the long term, whatever that may be, whether it be in their industry, whether it be in the way we relate to each other in society. You know, just the mere fact that we all appreciate how much our frontline healthcare workers essential workers in supermarkets, bus drivers, how much more we appreciate the work they do. For the first time in a long time, those people are extremely visible in a way that perhaps the light hasn't been shone on them because it's just considered as part of the normality, something that happens, the jobs they do is something that we expect them to do and they do all the time. So I think in that regards, I think that's what I really think I have taken from this whole situation and appreciate the most is how much more the whole of society and communities are coming together, are relating to each other a bit better and are supporting people to do great things that benefit all of us, really. Anita Asante there. You're listening to The Way to Work with the ADECO Group Foundation. Today we're exploring the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on individuals and business owners around the world. So far we've heard about some of the changes the pandemic's already accelerated in workplaces and we've picked up on the stories of those for whom working from home isn't an option. We've heard from Brazil where delivery drivers face high demand but have plenty of concerns for their safety in the face of the global public health crisis. And we've caught up too with a professional athlete who's recognised how a greater emphasis on community is of benefit to individuals and wider society. Let's turn now though from individuals to businesses and learn more about how SMEs are weathering the financial storm brought about by COVID-19. At times such as this, corporate citizenship comes into clearer focus than ever before. While individuals may find support in their communities, Business themselves often function as communities in their own right. For some, the pandemic's prompted a revision in the employer-employee relationship, as leaders have re-evaluated what they might owe the workers whose labour they benefit from. An old idea has been given new resonance by the urgency of the pandemic. Mungo Textile Mill in South Africa uses carefully maintained antique looms to manufacture textiles, which it then turns into boutique woven goods. It's a family-owned concern and a key employer in its hometown of Plettenberg Bay along South Africa's picturesque garden route. For Dax Holding, MD at Mungo and son of its founder, Stuart, the initial shock of the lockdown quickly gave way to a sense of urgency, a desire for action. When the government locked the country down, it was everyone went home. We're a manufacturing company, so we obviously can't continue to manufacture from home. We weavers, so we have quite big pieces of equipment to weave fabric on. So that immediately shut down. We um, have got a number of seamstresses who have machines at home. We immediately shifted to designing and producing a cloth face mask. Even though at the time there wasn't a huge amount of information or permission, so to speak, from the authorities to be able to use it, we saw 
that in the East that's, that was sort of standard practice wearing cloth face masks. So we immediately started doing that. My philosophy on, on it was just to do something. Rather than sitting around, I, I, I thought, let's, let's get cracking with something. So mask design and then production started, and that sort of rolled over into producing scrubs for the local medical doctors and nurses. Introducing the new line was a canny move, but from a personnel perspective, how did Mungo respond? The first thing that sort of came to us when we saw that we were going to be sending our staff home was... How do we prepare them for what's coming? I can sit and watch the news and BBC, I'm connected to the world around me, but a lot of our staff members, you know, they're not as, they're connected to their local community, but not on an international level. You know, so in terms of protocols of sanitization and social distancing, we put a lot of time and effort into preparing them for that with a view to the idea that they could sort of almost be ambassadors in their own communities. So take it seriously, this is no joke. These are the tools that you have to try and mitigate the issue of this in your local community and be good ambassadors for the company and within your community. In South Africa, the question of employee safety is all the more critical. It's the global centre of the HIV epidemic with 7.7 million citizens living with HIV. COVID represents another dimension of threat. What steps did Mungo take to ensure employee safety and continued well-being? We decided that we would pay everybody their full salaries as, as long as we possibly could. You know, obviously not to the detriment of the company. And then looked at that and how we would do that and essentially, you know, started at the top and said the highest paid staff members are the ones that will, f- will get the first cuts and they will essentially be working for the lower paid members. And that philosophy allowed us to move forward with a clear strategy so all of the senior staff members have taken a 20% cut and the weekly paid or the, the lower paid staff have benefited from a full salary and we'll keep that going as long as possible. It comes down to refocusing on us as a community, so as a family, I suppose, as a staff members. We all have to look after each other, regardless of our weaknesses or our strengths. You know, somebody who may be HIV positive can't come into work, so it's up to us to make sure that they've got food on their table. And, yeah, I think that kind of shifted our attitude a little bit. This paradigm shift represents a new understanding of the employer-employee contract. The impact of COVID-19 is universal and the economic fallout stands to be universally felt. While community may have fallen by the wayside in the drive for rapid expansion and growth, for SMEs and the individuals they support, it's key. But does DAC see this attitude at play in other businesses? It has brought out the best in, in, in a lot of people. There's a lot of people who are very desperate, but I mean, the local, the local supermarket has opened up shelves for, for people who are producing items from their home, bakers and you know, people making preserves, and he's opened up his shelves to, to these small you know, businesses who've lost their market completely, but he, as an essential service provider, has been able to keep his, his doors open. So, and you know, he's, got a lot, he's had a lot of interest on that, from that subject nationally, and that can only have a positive influence on other people's behavior. I think people have pulled together and, you know, where there was this corporate social responsibility movement, I think people are starting to see the importance of it more rather than simply as a strategy that a company adopts in order to be current. It's going to become more a part of how we think. Dax Holding there of Mungo Design. 
As is becoming clear, in times such as this, individual economic welfare and the economy more broadly is increasingly reliant on community. Junta Local in Rio de Janeiro was founded to bring small producers into contact with consumers. Since the outbreak of the crisis, it's pivoted. Conceived as a market, Junta Local has quickly established an online outlet. With goods requiring delivery, the founders decided against using pre-existing delivery apps, instead establishing new infrastructure, repurposing existing delivery networks to keep their business going. Co-founder Bruno Negrau explains why. Major concerns about to start the delivery system at Junta was not to recur to any of those big players, happy or loggers. We see that these major companies, they don't value the human effort and they treat their so-called collaborators not as we wanted to treat them. So what we did was to look up inside of our network of producers and see the drivers and uh, all the people they support, like the all the people that already do their deliveries. So we wanted them to be part of the Junta's team of delivering. So we basically focused on trying to get these drivers that already know how Junta work, know the Junta philosophy. And because we, we see the delivery system and the person who do the delivery, as a part of the Junta process, as a part of the Junta philosophy. So we didn't want people who are alienated of this process. Besides that, we also found a startup that do all uh, deliveries by bike. So we basically did a kind of combination of different kind of transports. We have the bikes delivery, we have motorcycle deliveries, where people who already did the deliveries for Junta's producers. And we have the cars delivered that also are people who already did the Junta's producers' deliveries for a while. So they are more connected with the Junta's philosophy. Rather than fall back then on those pre-existing delivery networks, Junta Local recognised the importance of falling back instead on its own company values for both customers and the fragile community it's built itself around. Let's head next to the other side of the world. Coronavirus originated in China and territories across East Asia are beginning to offer a vision of the future as they move through the worst of the outbreak into the post-pandemic world. Hong Kong has dealt remarkably well with the outbreak. With only four deaths from COVID-19, it's become a lodestar in the international fight against the virus. Still, the economic fallout from the pandemic has been considerable. Thomas Hoy is the co-founder and CEO of The Desk, a company that provides co-working space in the city. As Thomas explains, the coronavirus pandemic arrived hot on the heels of an already turbulent time for the city. Before the COVID-19, Hong Kong already experienced six months of social unrest. When our business start this year in January, we thought that, okay, we are going to recover. But... Unfortunately, there was another big surprise to us. Hong Kong is doing really, really well. Maybe because of the experience 17 years ago of SARS. And this time, in fact, Hong Kong was the most exposed to the pandemic 
maybe also the most best performing city in the world. Unlike Europe or the US, where co-working spaces cater as much to individuals working in a freelance capacity as they do to businesses, the desk primarily hosts other businesses. Most of our members, they are SME, they are doing business, and you know, Hong Kong, 93% of our GDP is from service industry. So the impact for those businesses is not only restricted to the tourists or retail or FMB. In fact, it affects comprehensively most of the businesses in Hong Kong. Unlike many co-working spaces, the desk goes further than simply providing businesses with office space. We've heard from Junta Local in Brazil and Mungo Design in South Africa that the outbreak's thrown the importance of community into stark relief. For the desk, community's always been at the core of its business proposition. This approach has proven invaluable in the face of the global economic downturn, as Thomas explains. The vision of the desk on the co-working space is community as a service. Our value proposition is we enable our members to have a better business at the desk. And we define our deliverables as three level of sharing. So the first level everybody understands is about the sharing of hardware, the space, the facilities with a certain level of hospitality. Our vision is something more than this level. We have two more levels of sharing we can see. The second level, I think, is about the sharing of expertise. So I'll give you one example. Of course, now, if you ask me, 90% of the business in Hong Kong, they are in survival mode. So in survival mode, you are not looking at your revenue side. You are looking at your cost side, how to cost down. We are also doing that. So normally, for example, the beverage, okay, the, the drinks, the beer, we include in our membership. And this item, maybe just 1% or 2% of our cost. Okay, normally you don't look at that. But now you need to look at that. And when we prepare the list of the, the cost item, we just identify one of our members. They are doing F&B business. They are expert. For them, this is their cost structure. So we just share this list to them. And then within five minutes, they identify 30% cost down measures. And also they propose that, Thomas, why not I do the job for you? Because regularly we need to review our procurement process. And then I just charge you a normal administration fee. And we just let them do. And then we focus on our core competence. So this is one example. In fact, in the community, you have different expertise and then if you can identify trustworthy people and they are competent at that area, and then you can share the expertise. So this is a second level. And in fact, in the survival mode, you should identify partners and help each other to cope with the challenges. The third level is after pandemic, what will be the new norm? And the new norm, how can the new norm create opportunity for your business and how can you adapt. So this is third level we define as co-create and collaborate. For example, I have a lot of customers, for example, the corporate customers, they need regular face masks. Okay, I have the demand. And one of my members, they are in garment manufacturing industry. They know how to 
change their production line into manufacturing face masks and get all the certification. And another one is a fashion designer. They know how to make a face mask become a fashion. So we identify a new business opportunity and we just share the same vision and we collaborate and work together to create new business. So I think the pandemic is the best moment for us to educate the market what is a real co-working business. The real co-working business is not just limited to the sharing of hardware. It's something much bigger. And it's not just a solution for the workspace. It's a solution for your business. In his community-focused approach, Thomas has identified a key strategy for building resilience as the world enters the recovery phase of the pandemic through creating and maintaining networks, facilitating collaboration and sharing knowledge and skill sets, SMEs have more latitude not just to survive, but to find opportunity. That's almost all for this edition of The Way to Work. Today we heard from Linda Gratton, who outlined a shift in values, a recognition of the importance of community in ensuring that individuals and businesses can meet the challenges of today with resilience. We've heard this echoed in the accounts of individuals personally affected by the pandemic and in the testimony of SMEs from around the world, smaller businesses that have recognised the importance of community in supporting their workforces and in prospering in challenging economic times through collaboration with other businesses, pooling skill sets and assets to find opportunity in crisis. Indeed, a community lies at the heart of what we've learned today. In the face of a global crisis, resilience is shared between individuals and businesses who rely on a speedy economic recovery. We've also learned a little more about the acceleration of changes to the workplace that had been predicted in the future. Technology that promised to reshape how we work in years to come has been adopted across sectors at extraordinary speed today. Upskilling and reskilling looked set to become a necessary part of every professional's working life, and now they have, as the urgent need to adopt new technologies has become a learning opportunity for people around the world. Next time on The Way to Work, we'll dig further into these new technologies and ask how developments that promise to change working life in the future have fitted into the way we work today. Keep up to speed and find new episodes at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts and find out more anytime about the work of the foundation. Visit adecogroupfoundation.org. That's all for this edition of The Way to Work. I'm Tom Edwards. Thank you very much for tuning in. And wherever you are in the world, do stay safe.